Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome, everybody. Here's what we got. Uh, first thing, attachment theory. You brought it up earlier mm-hmm. this week. We did a video on attachment theory. There's four different types. Secure, who is secure. Anxious, who gets anxious when there's problems in a relationship. Avoidant, who tends to run away and avoid them. And then anxious, avoidant, who is a combination of the, of the two. Mm-hmm. This is according to psychological models of people who have studied sort of relationships and uh, how typically how child interact with their parents, which affects how they interact in their adult relationships with their significant other. You said, which I thought was funny, how did I wind up with the worst one of them? Mm-hmm. Because you're like, I'm anxious and I'm also avoidant. And I thought that was interesting because it got me thinking that when I was making the video, I categorized the characters that I did into a type. I was like, Captain America secure, this guy's this, Iron Man's avoidant, etc. But I'm, sh- But I was actually watching the video looking for very particular moments where they displayed those traits. So I watched their movies looking for that. And I thought if I went back and looked for Captain America being anxious or being avoidant at any point in his MCU stint, I'm absolutely sure that I could have found it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Iron Man being secure and, you know, like with everybody. Um, So I think a much more useful way if you ever watch that video or have used this model is to think of it more as a spectrum of which you have percentages. And typically when people, you know, just draw the line arbitrarily in the middle, cross that 50 line, People say, oh, well, you're anxious uh, because they see it constantly in their relationships. But realistically, we all have some anxious, some avoidant, and some secure. And the question is just, where are your triggers? Like, what specifically has to happen? Is it when your significant other uh, is mean to you or doesn't give you compliments or goes out with the friends or whatever? And then what can you do to, you know, hopefully expand the sphere of security and limit the other two? But I did think it was useful because... There's probably people, including myself, who thought because I am like I would categorize myself more as of the dominant negative one that I have is avoidant. But if that obscures for me the fact that I also have anxious tendencies, I think that's not to my benefit. So, yeah, no, I think both. I think everybody has aspects of them because like you're avoidant, but also and I, maybe I'm forgetting what there is. But anxious is that when someone tries to leave you hold on, right? Well, I mean, to some degree, if you like someone enough, most people will, when things are rocky and someone's saying, oh, maybe we should just break up, they'll try to maintain the relationship, at least for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I see avoidance in myself in the sense that sometimes when I get frustrated, I go, fuck it. If I could push a button, I would just have this relationship Mm -hmm. have never happened. But at the same time, I don't, at the start of any fight, say, well, we should just break up. Like I'm willing to come to the table and talk about things. And so I think uh, everybody has aspects of those. And I actually don't know because I haven't studied it enough. 
to what extreme do you have to display it before a clinical psychologist would label you it? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people at some point in a relationship will hit a threshold where they say, I'm out. And at some point they'll hit a threshold. They go, I care about this person a lot. I want to work on it. And that's probably a mischaracterization, a little bit of anxious and avoidant, but there's, there's those aspects, especially if you date someone for a really long time that will just appear where Mm -hmm. you're like, your threshold is hitting one of those points, even if you're secure 90% of the time. Yeah. It makes me think about, I think almost everything is we're we're finding out in the world is better described as a spectrum than a binary or a trinary or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like I think of autism for instance, which is like, Oh, you you are, you're not. And it's like, well, you, you're not your Asperger's or you're autistic. And it's like, wait a second, you're a little bit socially awkward. You know, you're, you're comfortable socially a little piece. And we just start subdividing into categories. Like these categories are just kind of arbitrary thresholds, which is your point. Now, at some point, somebody's going to look at your relationship, be it a friend or a, a therapist and say, you know, you tend to run away from a lot of these. Therefore, it would be good for you to see uh, these avoidant tendencies in you. But yeah, the point that we've been making is that if you think that because you are avoidant, you are not anxious, or you think that because you do not have uh, an Asperger's diagnosis, that you do not have areas in which you are not picking up social cues, that is foolish. You know what I mean? There's not just categories of people. I think just about everything that I can conceive of, um, perhaps with the exception of like binary code, (laughs) exists on some kind of a spectrum where there's not clear categorization. So that was that. Anything else you wanted to add? I'm just, I'm looking up now. I'm more curious what the actual definitions of the different behaviors are. And maybe that is, maybe that was my misinterpretation of, uh, it's totally possible that that was my misinterpretation of the, of the attachment styles is that, that, that already has been recognized that they occur on a spectrum. But that was not what I found when I was researching it, that they, they tend to lump them as categories that are separate from one another. Yeah, it's interesting. Insecure adults may be anxious. Uh, they worry that others may not love them completely and be easily frustrated or angered when their attachment goes unmet. Attachment needs go unmet. Others may be avoidant. They may appear not to care too much about close relationships. They may prefer not to be too dependent upon other people. Uh, to some degree, some of this is also healthy in the sense that if you're too dependent, you're codependent, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's clearly there's a line somewhere between avoidant where you don't get to where you don't get quote unquote too dependent. Then there's healthy where you're also <laughs> not super dependent. Yeah, and yeah. then there's, de- there's codependent where you're too dependent. And so well, there's, there's who is de- to say when you're, <laughs> who's to say when you're, when you prefer not to be too dependent on other people, whether you're avoidant or healthily not codependent. Sure. Sure. And, and that's a social uh, agreement that a therapist makes and it looks at your life. The other thing is there's times where security in a relationship is ridiculous. Like if somebody's going out all the time smelling of, you know, let's say it's uh, your your boyfriend. He's going out, comes back smelling of women's perfume and tells you that he was, you know, hanging out with the guys in their basement watching sports. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he does it every Saturday. And you're like, I'm secure in my relationship. Uh, there's, there's space where one would want to feel anxious and that would be like the appropriate response because this person is withdrawing from you. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess that's the question. Sorry, like... <laughs> Are you the anxious type at that point or are you just not a sucker? Yeah. If that's what's happening to you. Yes. And I think um, so much of, I guess, even personal development and psychology is about 
not just having uh, like sort of cl- in, in influenced by Cialdini. It's called like click were patterns that you go into. Like, you know, somebody extends their hand, you extend their hand back unthinkingly and shake their hand. It's it's about avoiding having those click were patterns and instead responding to the particular situation that you are in, gathering as much relevant context as possible. And so that you're not trapped in, uh, you know, the traumas of your childhood when, when somebody goes out and that makes you think that you're definitely being abandoned. But when they smell of perfume and <laughs> they say that they were in somebody's basement, that something goes off in your head. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, just just something that I wanted to add. We might make an update to that video because I think, I think I saw a lot of people. People love categories, man. Whenever I make any of those videos, what type, what type, what yeah, type. Yeah. And that's why I make them to a degree is because people love to know their horoscope, their charisma type, their attachment type. Uh, yeah, there's some safety in saying this is what I am. It is a clear and defined category and it encapsulates me. And I think people are so eager to like, I'm an Enneagram type three. And it's like, dude, if you look at all eight Enneagrams, you're going to have characteristics of all of them. Sure. There's some utility to it, to knowing I predominantly hang out here but it also creates blind spots in in seeing like oh the problems that i have are going to be described by enneagram type three and not by enneagram type eight which is just not the case well yeah what my favorite part about a lot of these because this became so popular i don't know if people remember this phase where a lot of businesses would have you fill out a survey before they marketed their services Mm -hmm. to you because they were saying that different services fit different types but really it's just they wanted to be able to better persuade you to buy mm-hmm. but it was all it's all self-reported yeah 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 so you can you could have someone who just has a tremendous ego and terrible self-awareness go in and fill out a, a self-survey and go oh my god what i'm i'm the perfect type i'm the exact type i want to be and all my stuff is great and i have no flaws and this makes total sense because this fits my self-identity completely this is completely right questions will be like people generally like hanging out with me it's like yes yeah and if you took the (laughs) 10 closest people to that person and had them each fill out the survey for that person you might have a totally different personality type Mm -hmm. attachment style enneagram so i've always found that to be particularly interesting is that this 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 says more about how you perceive yourself than it does about who you are or how you actually are in the world and in some cases, that's appropriate because the thing that they're measuring is your self-assessment. But in other cases where they're telling you what kind of, uh, you know, are, are you a good friend personality and you're filling it out for yourself, it's like you are the worst person to ask this well, question. Even, even I think, stuff like the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you be an unbiased mm-hmm. narrator for who you are in terms of your personality type? Yeah. I, I feel like the people around you actually may have sometimes a clearer view of your interpersonal habits than you do. Yeah. I've often thought it would be nerve-wracking, not necessarily for the Enneagram or the MBTI, which is the Myers-Briggs, but to uh, to get 360 feedback from people in your life that was just like, you know, what are their biggest flaws? What are their biggest blind mm-hmm. spots? And just have that go out anonymized to everyone in your life. I had a friend that did this. Yeah. He said it was super valuable. Yeah. I think I got it. I yeah, think, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. You know the person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's that saying? It's like if uh, if you go out and meet one jerk, maybe they were a jerk. If you go out and meet 10 jerks in one day, maybe you're a jerk and <laughs> yeah. everyone's just being a jerk to you because you're a jerk. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, that's weird. Sorry. My three or uh, ex just texted me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Spicy. <laughs> Spicy. What did it say? How are you? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know if my face was on there, but I did like a spit take. <laughs> was that? Um, Got to go oh, on man. airplane mode for the podcast, dude. What was I going to say? It was something good, man. So you were, sorry, you were just, you had just commented that if other people, if you're the jerk, oh, I watched really, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I watched yesterday, um, the guitarist slash banjo player from Mumford and Sons, Mm -hmm. he tweeted a little while ago, Andy, no, really brave book that you have, I liked it, and was, uh, Twitter mob descended upon him, Andy, no, is horrible, how dare you, he's a liar, this, that, and the other thing, uh, they came after Mumford and Sons, Mumford, uh, according to the guitarist, he said, graciously let him stay. But at some point, he felt that the heat that they were getting for him was too much, and he left the band after mm. 10 years of being in the band. And and so he did this interview. He had only glowing things to say about his bandmates. Um, but one of the, the discussions, it was with Barry Weiss, uh, that they had was on the difficulty of, like, you know, usually that's a really good heuristic. If 10 people tell you that you are an asshole, mm. that's a really, really good time to pause and reflect. And even if you're sure that you're not to go, I'm going to suspend my my self-assessment right. here. And how that is so easily corrupted in the age of anonymized mobs. Sure. Well, it's not, that's, that anecdote isn't prepared for social media. Yes. Yes. And, uh, or even, I, it doesn't need to be social media. Obviously, you can have some, you know, it, it's it's intended for, uh, yeah, I guess, interactions. And then and then you get on the internet, and that all gets thrown out the window. So it was just really interesting to hear him. I mean, he left the band. He left the band, in his own in his own words, to spare his bandmates and to save his conscience. He's like, and the impression that I got, he's like, look, I don't have any crazy, horrible things to say, but I definitely felt like, I would be muzzled. Like if I was going to say that I liked this particular book, that that would bring hellfire down on my family and my bandmates. And I didn't want to not do that. So uh, I left the band. Did he leave his family as well? <laughs> then he left his family. No, no. He seemed like a very, um, very thoughtful guy. But it just, it just made me think of that. I got a bunch of random stuff. He's a banjo player, right? A banjo player. And they said lead guitarist and banjo player. I think I think banjo player is like is like the lead guitarist in yeah. Mumford. Well, the good Sons. news for him is I'm sure there'll be a lot of high paying banjo jobs available to him. Well, I think this is what I was I was like, because when you hear banjo player in most bands, you think that is not the one, two, three, or four guy in the band. That's like some backup. But I think banjo player and Mumford and Sons might be like lead singer, banjo player. It might be right at the top. Sure, unless he's a one man <laughs> band though, he's just gonna have the same issue, which is people are gonna keep hating him for that one tweet. Uh, it seems that already, and this is the other thing, it's like, it's kind of like a tsunami and then it just falls on you and then it recedes Yeah, and it's not there anymore. And you're like, what, all that for just to destroy my, my life and then never return. So was it worth it to leave Mumford and Sons at that point? Should he have just sat it out? Um, no, he says he feels really good about it. He's Hmm. like, I, he's the path that he felt like he had to walk. He's like, I needed to maintain my integrity and I needed to protect the people I loved. Um, and he said, I know that if I stay, that literally any song, any album, it will always be, you know, the controversial this, the that. They will have to answer questions till the end of time hmm. about a tweet that I sent. And uh, while I don't think that, that I deserve it based on this tweet, it is my shit. And I want to contain that. Interesting. What yeah. a selfless guy. Yeah. Um, I thought it was pretty, it was pretty, just from that one interview, I thought he was pretty impressive. Um, what is the book? Is it like Mein Kampf? No, it was about, it's Andy No, who, and I don't know a ton about the guy, but I know that he's apparently highly controversial. He 
things that I know about him. He reports on uh, like Pacific Northwest stuff. So a lot of like the rioting that was happening in, uh, was it Portland or Seattle? It's Portland. Um, and he reports a lot on Antifa and he's pretty anti-Antifa. Um, he is accused by his people that don't like him of being a liar oh, is this and a the guy, fascist. This is the guy that got hit with the concrete milkshake. This is the guy who got concrete milkshaked, yes. Oh. Um, and so look, things that I know about Andy know, he has a book. I don't know if he tells the truth or doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> you know, I've put very little effort into understanding that. Um, but that's, yeah, he wrote a book. The guy said it was very brave of him to say what he said. And then that, that brought a lot of uh, upset people descending upon not just him, but I think the family members. It's like, look, I can take it. But now my bandmates' family members are getting tracked down. And like, you know, Mumford's, he didn't say this, but it's like the guy's daughter or niece or mm. someone is getting hit. And you just don't want that. Um, so, uh, bunch that's, of that's other just stuff. interesting. No, sorry, that's an interesting takeaway from thinking that words are violence. Mm -hmm. Is that you you meet violence with violence? So, like, if someone mm. punches me in the face, I punch them in the face. Yeah, this is considered an appropriate reaction. It's self defense. Yeah, when words are violence, then it's appropriate to meet them with violence, right? And the rhetoric is that some speech, like hate speech is violent and you have to stop hate speech at all cost. But then we don't have a clear definition of what hate speech is. And so then you have people that think, well, this person tweeted and they said, writing this book was brave. So I'm going to harass a 13 year old mm. because the 13 year old's dad is in a band with the guy that I don't like. Yeah. Which when you, at least for me, when I look at it from that lens, that's a very odd chain of events to occur in someone's mind like oh this guy made a tweet he's in a band i'm gonna come after the family members of everyone that's in that band well and yeah and that that i think what we're dealing with unfortunately is the math of millions you know what i mean because that's not it's not the common response of course. or even the uncommon that is the absolute fringe response but in millions of people they could end up with a hundred people yeah, yeah there's harassing <laughs> yeah the child of a person or, or someone who didn't tangentially send related yeah. correct yeah um yeah, I mean, like large groups of people are tough cause, mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, if you if you are uh, the behavior of any the worst behaved person out of a million, two million, three million is probably murdered someone mm -hmm. at some point in their life. So it well, just, that's what PewDiePie was dealing with. Someone someone did a shooting and then said subscribe to PewDiePie. Yeah, yeah. and they blame PewDiePie and, and PewDiePie has a hundred million subscribers. Million subscribers, yeah. And he just goes, some of these people do things that I wouldn't endorse. Yeah. I don't even know how to handle this. Like I have a hundred million subscribers. It's obvious that every day one of these people will do a behavior that I find heinous. Mm -hmm. How does he become responsible for that? How does he handle that responsibility if it's put on him? Yeah. And at the same time, there is an interesting question of like uh, celebrity and has power to create action, mm -hmm. which is, and I, I don't think PewDiePie at all had anything to do with the shooting, but like, you can definitely, you can make people buy things. You sure, can you, can, like, you, you can, could dog whistle for violent acts. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't think that that means that everyone who's simultaneously a fan of yours and commits a violent act was dog whistled into doing it. Yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, it seems like, yeah, the, the, 
we've talked about this, so I don't want to belabor it, but it's like I all the people who said the things that they said, I actually, you know, maybe it was a, just put, pretend the number's 100. Put them in front of the little girl. Put them in front of that guitarist. Take them away from their mob and give them free opportunity to say whatever it is that they need to say mm-hmm. to his face. And of those 100, 99 of them shut the hell up. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, No, they, they would probably, yeah, all, none of them would scream at the little girl yeah. in the way that they do behind a DM or a tweet. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, I wonder if the internet will ever, I don't know if this would be a good thing or a bad thing, a loss of privacy, but evolve to the point where uh, there is more of that human sense and also potentially fear of personal retribution. Like it's, it is when you're hiding in a mob, it is very, it's a very powerful feeling. I think that's the other thing is that you feel really strong mm-hmm. when you are unassailable when you are just a, a person in a thing and you could throw a milkshake and recede back into the mob where yeah. you can inflict pain and damage and and know that none will be coming back for you. You remain anonymous. Yeah, it's um, it's very, you got to feel very powerful in, in those positions. And I'm sure that partially what drives some of this is is a lack of power. Yeah, well, I think, what, I think the way it, and this isn't how it'll actually shake out, but I think what people like now is retaining their own anonymity but when other people get their comeuppance by being revealed. So like if someone, if a nurse makes a video that they don't like and then loses her job or if a... You're talking about like COVID masks and... COVID well, anything, honestly, even if a business person, that can be something that's anything, political, uh, medicine, homophobic, racist, whatever it might be, uh, that, that that person is identified and then loses their job because of it. People love that until it's them. And also we don't, weirdly enough, we don't, you don't lose your job if it comes out that you're the one that's harassing a 11 year old online. At least I've never seen that. Normally it is for something political, hmm. racist, homophobic. That yeah, you have you'll, to, you'll lose your the job. The gaze of the world has to be on you. Right. But if you're in the mob gazing, saying mean things, yeah, I, I can't think of, but at least it doesn't get coverage. You yeah. don't you don't know about the person that harassed this guy's child getting their comeuppance in the real world by being identified uh, and losing their job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or saying, yeah, that's not somebody that we want representing uh, UNICEF. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like this guy works. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I suppose that's part of it is just to imagine that you might not always be in the mob. You could at some point be the focus of the mob's attention. He uh, also recommended an essay, which I read, which is Live Not by Lies by Solzhenitsyn, who wrote Gulag Archipelago. Jordan Peterson loves him. And he seems to be having, as far as I just, in what I'm hearing, a little bit of a resurgence. And it's just a very short essay that is interesting. What he recommends, basically, is uh, that, okay, he lives in communist Russia. And, like, there's uh, penalties mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for saying So he says, okay, don't worry about telling the truth. Just refuse to participate in lies. And some of the stuff that he says, like, because... Um, is very powerful. People have asked us, and I've seen on other podcasts, hey, I disagree with this thing that is happening in my workplace. The diversity thing seems misguided or whatever. What should I do? And I've, what I have said, because I'm not Alexander Solzhenitsyn, has been like, I understand, you know, do what you can, maybe look to get a new job, but go along to get along. And what Solzhenitsyn would say, which I thought was pretty powerful for a guy who was in the gulag, um, is walk out. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to, verbally disagree you don't have to shout you just need to leave the room you need to refuse to participate in lies it's kind of like the um 
civil disobedience of lies. Like, you mm-hmm. don't fight anybody, but you just do not participate in them or do them. You don't You don't go to any rallies that are you're tried to... It's funny, some of it is so apropos, because I was, you know, thinking of um, the, the BLM rallies, and if you support it, fantastic. But I know so many people who felt pressure to go, who did not believe in or support the cause who went and yeah i know multiple people who don't didn't like what the blm protests were or had become Mm -hmm. but it but still attended them because they felt extreme social pressure or fear if they didn't have some social media proof that they had attended one and so i'm not saying schultz would say they're better or worse but he really does carve this particular essay out to be like you are a coward and you are a huge part of the problem and so I was like, it's interesting, like, you know, you support BLM, you don't support the protests, you want to talk. Like, if we can get those two sides who earnestly believe things to talk, great. But part of the problem, not the whole problem, but part of it is that you have uh, dishonest actors signaling mm-hmm. allegiance in order to try to be on the side, the winning side. Um, and so, yeah, it's almost like, look, if everybody could just only say things that they believe, and then we could talk about them at least from a uh, an honest place and then hopefully a good faith attempt to arrive at the truth you know what a, what a world that would be but yeah. uh, it'd be really cool well, and, and I think maybe that makes sense from an individual's perspective but from the movement's perspective I think at least short term it seems far better to say if you believe this get in line but also if you don't get in line you'll be a pariah so get in line oh well that's that's better for the movement that's better for the communist party that's better for whatever so yeah. You know, obviously that that's at odds there because you're either the, with us or you're against us is very is is what yes because what they want to do not and that this is happening not in the minds necessarily of any individual but collectively this is the evolutionary pressure is these ideologies organizations want to grow and expand and mm-hmm. have more power and more bodies whether or not they're full believers or not creates more power mm-hmm. um, so it was it was interesting you know he apparently was comforted by reading this essay which was just, you know, live not by lies. Like, I don't have to go out there. He's like, it doesn't seem like he's going to become a political figure, but he's not going to... Delete the tweet. Delete. Well, he may have deleted the tweet, and he even apologized. And he said, you know, when I apologized, I was apologizing to my bandmates, <laughs> primarily. I don't know what he said in his apology, but at least then he did release a Medium article, which was just, um, in his opinion, he's like, because I like this book... Uh, a whole ton of assumptions were then made about me, which mm-hmm. are untrue. Um, and even in the comments, it's like, and you know, it was horrible and you're spreading. It's just like, oh man, I, it would take a long time to sit down with this, this level of person. Even if he's, I don't know, man. Well, did he say like the book or just he thought it was brave? He thought to write? it was brave. And like, I'm trying to think of like, let's think of the worst version of this just to represent. Let's pretend that he, he was reading Mein Kampf. Hitler, um, Hitler's daughter is somewhere out there in the world. And he tweets at, you know, little daughter, like, so brave of your dad to write this book. Even then, and while I can understand people getting upset, I think part of what I want to train myself to do is to be like, well, what part of the book did he like? You know what I mean? Like, did he think it was brave to say it because it was uh, going to be shouted down and he disagreed with it? Like, I'm trying to consistently slow the jump to... Hmm. Uh, assumption and condemnation with this stuff, which will make me commit. I think there's, you know, there's type one and type two errors. I forget which one is which, but one of the errors is where you let a guilty man free. And like, I will make that error often with this, but 
like the legal system, I think it is better to let a guilty man go free than to imprison or punish an innocent one. Yeah, it's interesting because even as you say that, I don't, I don't know if there's a large group of thoughtful, moderate thinkers who are quiet, but certainly whenever we talk about politics, there's more comments being critical of us for being enlightened centrists than there are comments, uh, I guess, decrying that type of thinking. Like there, there's maybe they're just the loudest people, but this idea of seeing both sides of an issue, saying even if I disagree, I understand your points. There's some part of the population that thinks that's a ter- that bad, like a bad habit, not just something that they don't do, but something they refuse to do because it's not useful. Well, so I, you go, yeah. oh, this person doesn't want a vaccine. Why don't they want a vaccine? It seems so obvious to me. Well, maybe they were raised in an area where it, they're just taught from a young age not to trust the government about anything or to value personal freedom. Or maybe they have, uh, you know, from a young age, gotten misinformation about other types of vaccines and this and that. So maybe they're not a bad person. Maybe they're actually acting from what they think is their best interest and their best the best interest of everyone, including myself, is mm-hmm. what they think they're coming from. And, and were I in their position growing up, I'd probably have come to yeah. similar conclusions. And yeah. most people, not most people, sorry, there is a group of people who who will hear that and go, I don't even want to extend that empathy. I want that side to be considered bad. They're the enemy. They're mm-hmm. the outsiders. And we have to decry them in order to get them to do what we want or in order to get other people to do what we want. We have to make them idiots, devils, whatever it may be. And uh, yeah, I've just, I was surprised when I saw it because I was like, oh, enlightened centrist. This seems like a pretty positive term. No, in fact, it's a derogatory mm-hmm. one. I was surprised to find out. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's uh, people, people don't, there's not a huge movement towards what you're talking about, which is seeing that tweet, even if it supports a book you don't like and going, what could this mean? How could this guy not be what, evil? Yeah, maybe <laughs> this guy and I are the same. Yeah. And his upbringing was different. Or this tweet doesn't mean what I think it is and I'm just mind reading. Yeah, I don't know. That's not that's not where I see the U.S. culture sure. at least going. Well, I think what you're accurately pointing to is that the rush to jump is not... I don't even know. it. There's a bit of control, but I actually really do think it's... There's something so deeply tribal about human psychology, mm-hmm. like, and just signaling tribal alliances, whether it's uh, when your sports team is playing or on Twitter, mm-hmm. is so deeply rooted in us. And so you say some, you mentioned enlightened centrism. What I've seen are is that there are these, um, there are these labels and throwaway lines that people have, people who use them do not know what they mean but use them as segmenting tools into the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so enlightened centrist is one, which is you have yet to explain why that is a bad thing. You know what I mean? And, and if you ask many, I think, of the people who are saying it, why is it a bad thing? Why is it particularly bad in this context? I don't know that they could give you a good answer. They just have seen that that is a, uh, a label and an insult that effectively dismisses someone else's uh shouldn't be listened to well and i think it makes i think it's mostly like you're in the way of the the progress i want so if i'm an extreme Mm -hmm. republican or an extreme democrat or extreme liberal or extreme conservative then you being in the center gets in the way in the sense that you're going to slow down the progress i want because what i want is a fast moving pace towards 
and then just pick your thing. Abortion being made yeah. illegal again or uh, guns being made illegal. Just pick your extreme thing. It's like you're slowing us down by by trying to see the merits of both sides mm-hmm. and having empathy for both sides. And if everyone would just get on my page, we could get much faster to where I think the right destination is. So mm-hmm. that's why I think it's... I also wonder how many of those principled beliefs would change if the person's circumstances changed. So there's this is too easy. This is way too easy. But just as an example, there was that OK Boomer girl who was like, eat the rich shirts and all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they got her two million. This is this is I know this is the easiest one in the entire world. I'm not trying to set this up. But just as an example, um, it's eat the rich until you have a lot of money, at which point it's I earned this, you know, and mm-hmm. it's and I do wonder um yeah, you know, for everybody, what this is why Rawls, John Rawls, Veil of Ignorance is so powerful. Like, what if your position were changed? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what kind of world would you, what would the tax rate be in a world where you didn't know if you were rich or poor? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I know people who are extremely pro whatever the current American socialist movement is. And if they make 50 grand a year each, Anyone who makes a hundred grand a year, that's where the taxes should start hiking up. Mm-hmm. But if they make hundred and fifty grand and their significant other makes hundred and fifty grand, obviously three hundred grand of household income is not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And the increased taxes to pay for the socialist stuff should come at five hundred grand a year household income. Yeah. I, I haven't seen anybody And we all agree that everyone I know that billionaires have to pay the most because I don't, no one I know is a billionaire. I don't know anyone <laughs> who sends the government more than their fair share because they want to help fund programs more than they're required. They think required. they want to be the change that they need to see in the world. They believe in higher taxes and they believe it should apply to them. Yeah, most everyone and I see wants, they send a bigger check. That, yeah, just go, whoever's to the right of the bell of curve, <laughs> whoever's to the right of the bell curve, that's who should be paying more. Yes. That's, that's pretty much everyone I know. I actually don't even, and then, it is suspicious, and I just want to underscore what you just said, that the U.S. government at any given time throughout history who has raised and lowered the tax brackets to 36 to 39, that I cannot think of a single individual who, when it was lowered from 39 to 36, was like, you know what? It was right at 39, and I'm going to send in my 39. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's not one of those. It is curious that the U.S. government has never underbilled a single person to their own to their own. Uh, sense as far as i know and if you're out there and you're in the comments you're like i think it's 45 and i've been sending 45 every year you let me know in the comments mm-hmm. um, no and i think to uh i think that the obvious rebuttal that people will say is well i donate to charity sure but i would say probably a lot less than the government forces you to donate to other people like no and, no one i know thinks that they've missed so bad mm-hmm. that they're gonna go oh you know what i'm gonna donate 20 percent of my pre-tax income 40 percent of my post-tax income to charity furthermore charity is a choice and you select something that is near and dear to your heart like listen when we talk about raising taxes we don't talk about oftentimes more control over where that money goes we just talk about raising it so if you're and i'm not look you can be an advocate for raising taxes but i suppose what ben and i are saying is if you are an advocate for raising taxes at any level you should consider sending more this year to the government whether or not your tax proposal goes through. Well, no, but most people's Just proposal in, doesn't include their you should consider, income bracket. Yes, you should consider that it maybe should go up for your income bracket. Yeah. And you should just, and you should taste how that feels going out. And you should then feel the reasons that you don't like that 
might apply at various different levels. And that that sense of um, this could cut against my interests will give you, I think, a more sophisticated understanding of the complexity of the problem. And here's the good news. This is not to shut people up. It's to give you a really deep understanding of like the internal changes that are required to become uh, more charitable, magnanimous, uh, be the change you want to see in the world, which is absolutely not easy. It's mm-hmm. really easy to say that the world has a ton of problems, and if these other people would change, like everybody is is has a list of people that could could fix the world if only they would change. Um, yeah, and if you give away fifty percent of your post tax income, and you want to, you think that what would be fair is if everyone in the world gave away fifty percent of their post tax income. You have a really strong platform to stand on, which is that you're you're doing it, mm-hmm. you're living it, you're dealing with the consequences of it. And you still think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And I think you're the most credible person to suggest that plan. Yeah. And uh, this isn't actually to say that taxes shouldn't go up or that people shouldn't donate to charity. Obviously, we do our charity water campaigns. It's to say that you should do it before you try to suggest that Every, everyone else should yeah. do it or that the government should mandate that people do it. Or, and, and even and here's the thing, even the attempt, and I want to underscore this because this is not just to shut people down and say, hey, look, until you can change the world, the world is like, it's, it's that you will get a deeper understanding of the resistance internally to making any of these positive changes that you would like to see in the world. And it will make you more able to persuade people, you know? Um, so even, even if you're, uh, and all, yeah. It'll introduce you to the selfishness in your own heart, I suppose. Yeah. It's the value. I foresee a lot of comments explaining why it makes sense to raise taxes above a certain bracket that the person commenting isn't in. Yeah. So in before, <laughs> in, in before. And to be fair, that can still be true. And I, I actually, you know, I, you can still, I think, be, you could still think, look, billionaires ought to pay a higher share. We have a lot of tax loopholes. They don't even wind up paying the same percentage that other people pay. That should happen. And I'm going to apply that same critical eye to my own tax burden. I'm going to come into my own tax burden and imagine it from the perspective of somebody who makes a third as much as I do, how much I ought to pay, what luxuries I have that maybe I could go without so that the community could benefit. Like just the same level of critical eye to your own situation I think is a very, very sobering and powerful tool if if applied for a long time. Yeah, Um, no, I mean, I think Jordan Peterson has it when he says, you know, if you were in Nazi Germany, there's a really good chance you'd be a Nazi. I think it's, <laughs> look at how many billionaires don't pay what you think is a fair share of taxes. Let's say it's nine out of 10. There's a 90% chance that if you became a billionaire, yeah. you wouldn't pay your fair yeah. share of taxes. I, that's, love, that's, I love those tweets, which is like, you know, instead of going, you know what I would do, I would donate to all these, oh, would you? <laughs> you wouldn't, yeah. I mean, or there's a chance you would. There, Listen, there's a there's a billionaire that gives away all their money and that, yeah. you, you would, you just you have the exact same chance as all the current existing billionaires. And I think that's really hard for people to understand. I think that it's much easier to say that's a different class of person that is less ethical than I am. Yes, and I I will add just the one caveat here, which is that it is possible that the steps one needs to take to become a billionaire select for, for instance, more psychopathic personalities and such that the percentages might not be identical to the population as a whole. All that considered... You still probably wouldn't. <laughs> you still probably wouldn't give away a ton if you're not giving away a ton right now. Um, you have. You are not a billionaire. You are a millionaire compared to much of the world. If you are listening to our podcast, like relative. Yeah, you could do. You could give. Power. You could give an amount that you think is. And I don't mean to berate our audience at all. I'm just. Uh, no, no, no. This is, 
hopefully our audience is even better than the <laughs> yeah, average. Yeah. But no, it's just if, uh, you know, a billionaire could give away enough money that it wouldn't even matter to them, but it could change a life. It's like, well, $40 once a month would get someone who doesn't have access to clean water, clean water. And there's malaria nets and malaria pills. And I think people in India and Africa would probably look to our lower middle class people with the same critique yeah. of you guys sure seem like you have a lot and wouldn't notice if you gave me $40 a month. Mm -hmm. But I, on the other hand, could drink water that didn't have parasites in it mm -hmm. if you did. So that's what I mean. It's not, it's, it's just this, this, uh, I just made a video about this. Just like, yeah, whatever your critique is of someone else, write it down <laughs> and then say, in what ways could this apply to me? Yeah. Pretty, pretty concise. That's a good spot. Um, let's talk about the thing that everybody disagreed with me on, which will be, I appreciate it first off. So we talked about, uh, trans sports and how that related to women's sports and, um, there were some lazy comments, which is the case on YouTube, but there was actually some like long thoughtful ones and I, it's awesome. Um, I appreciate that. So I want to address them because I will say though, I did not read all of the comments. I read a proportion of them, some of them and was not persuaded. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back and try to more clearly explain my position. I would say I'm still not a hundred percent clear on it. I haven't really identified the core nugget of the argument and the slam dunk like, I just knocked your keystone out, but I'll work around it. And you help me. Fair? And then you have one that you want to do, too. Sure. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about uh, trans stuff. I'm going to start with a couple of, like, bottom line up front stuff. Um, so here's here it is. Uh, first off, as regards sports, I believe anybody should be able to make uh, just about any subdivision of, of uh, allowable players if they pay for it. So if you want to create a league of uh, only six- and seven-year-old girls playing basketball and they have to be under four-foot-six or I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, that's fine. You know, I think that that's totally fine. You just got to gotta hire the ref and you got to, you know, if it's community time, you have to share the court or come to the, a time where nobody's there, et cetera. Um, the one thing that complicates this is race. Should you be able to segregate on race? I think there's a good argument for why you don't want a society that – uh, allows that, but I'll leave that to the side. Basically, you can make any sort of division, height, weight, gender, uh, that you want if you're paying for it. Second, no one has a right at all to be a pro athlete, right? Uh, you do not have a right ever to play any sport. You do not have a right to play basketball, football, etc. If the if what determines if you do have a right is if there is a market demand for that thing. So. You do not have a right to be a pro bowler, even if you bowl a 300 every single time. If no one wants to watch you bowl and there's no advertising money to be made, you could still pay to bowl, um, and I encourage you to, but you just, you don't have any right. Um, and so typically what happens is the market decides based on who the best humans are in any given sport to play it, right? But sometimes it likes to protect groups of people that are explicitly not competing against the best competitors in that sport. So, for example, uh, college football. NCAA is a total clusterfuck, but it's very profitable. And so college football, they are not playing against the best football players in the world, but it's still a profitable subdivision, and you're not allowed to play unless you're in college, and that the market will bear it. Uh, women's MMA. Valentina Shevchenko could not beat a guy that was in the UFC in her weight class, but... She's really fun to watch, and she's profitable, and she does great. Uh, Conor McGregor, we talked about, can't beat Francis Nagano, profitable, all the kind of thing. 
And what ha- and what is happening that right now in the UFC is that they are considering removing the 125 pound weight class for exactly this reason. There's a group of guys that are champions at 125 and non-competitive at 135, mm-hmm. but they don't generate enough interest or revenue, and so they have no right if the market doesn't want to see them. And Henry Cejudo is maybe interesting enough to make that division survive. So if the market stops supporting your protected class, you can't be a pro, go and pay. That's my thesis. So what trans athletes do, and interrupt at any point if you want, is they ask the question, um, why do we have two divisions? One which is the everyone can compete, which is typically considered men's, but I believe in most cases women are allowed to compete and are not competitive. And if that's not the case, I think it should be. I think there should be an open golf, football, baseball, etc., but why do we have uh, another tier that is professional, that is protected, even if it doesn't uh, carry its weight in the market? And just to be clear, some women's sports do. Some women's sports do. Some women's sports do. And, and I believe that should absolutely be allowed to exist because the market wants to see them. Um, so that's what the trans athlete does. Like, why should men not be allowed to enter into the WNBA and win and get those subsidized salaries, uh, court time, etc. And the answer that is often given is, and I read the comments, is basically because biologically, through no choice of their own, women are less athletic on average. They didn't have a chance at the testosterone. They didn't have a chance at the bone density. They didn't have a chance at all of this. Yeah, you don't get a 7 to 280 pound it's, it's athletic female effect- in the same way you do with mm-hmm. DeAndre Ayton, Giannis, Shaquille O'Neal. Sure. It is effectively impossible and we want to measure for skill and so what we do is we have this protected league where we can measure against skill. Um, sometimes these leagues, as in college and the WNBA, so women's college sports are often subsidized via Title IX by men's sports. Um, uh, and prize money, you know, this, I don't know if everybody believes this in the comments, will be even despite the ad revenue that they're bringing in not being the same. So this occurs in tennis. Rafael Nadal has to compete against everybody. Uh, the Williams system, the Williams sisters do not explicitly have to compete against every possible tennis player. Um, they have the same prize money? They get the same prize money. Huh. Um, and they fought for that. And I don't think that they deserved it because they bring in less revenue <laughs> than they do. Um, so this argument, I would just say, if you if you left a comment or you're listening to this, and I know I'm going slow, uh, is that the argument, because biologically blank is less athletic on average, just sub out a different category instead of women and see if you like the results. So other categories that you could say, because biologically men under five foot two are less likely to win and don't stand a chance. Because biologically men without a certain amount of fast twitch muscle fiber, because skin, without you know skinny men, men with scoliosis, amputees, etc. None of these categories are guaranteed a professional salary, access to sponsors, or in the case of the Olympics, an internationally televised world stage on which to compete. Um, the question that I would raise to you is, should they be? You know, if, if we could track via some sort of Apple device muscle fiber in everybody, and just for the sake of argument, say that you could 50% of the argument evenly split between men and women had fast twitch and 50% had slow, and we found that slow twitch muscle fiber people were very unlikely, almost impossible to compete at the highest level. Should there be a slow twitch muscle fiber professional league should that be should we insist upon that yeah it's not should there be it's should there be even if people don't want to pay to watch it yes because if people (laughs) to be clear if we had that division 
and there was a ton of demand to watch slow twitch football because people thought it was hilarious and so it made a bunch of money or or just fun yeah sure people don't think college basketball is hilarious they just like it you know what i mean even though it's worse than the nba even though though their three-point line is three feet closer and they can't do anything like Mm -hmm. the guys in the nba um so yeah for whatever reason if the market wants to bear it go ahead but should we insist should they get internationally televised spots? And my well, your big thing is: that, should they be subsidized? Should, should we subsidize subsidized? a slow twitch basketball league using NBA profits? Should we subsidize a slow twitch NFL league using NFL profits? Or even just take the Olympics? Should we guarantee an international camera crew watches them play once every four years, giving them a chance at a medal that is worth, uh, you know, five figures and sponsorship deals? For like the slow twitch 100 meter dash. Should we guarantee that? Yes, the slow twitch 100 100 meter dash. Should we guarantee that for this category of people if it doesn't make money? My answer is no. And And I'm sorry, I just want to make this clear. You're saying that because those slow twitch people, no matter how hard they worked, were genetically handed a hand that just precluded them from- 999 out of 1,000. Yeah, would just not, they wouldn't get it. They couldn't be Olympic sprinters just because of the hand they were dealt at birth. Yes, and here's what I'm saying. This already exists. It's not called slow twitch muscle fiber, but there are absolutely- uh, you could, if you looked at people's biology long enough into the future, find that there are people that are born without a shot in hell of ever playing in the NBA, and they are men. Now, women is an obvious class of people that we can look at, and we can see very easily with the naked eye that it is unlikely, if not impossible, that they will ever compete at the highest level in a sport like basketball. Um, the same categorization already exists for men. We just can't see it yet as easily but i Mm -hmm. it's 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 already there um and i saw some comments about like you know we want to measure for skill and i would just suggest to you that like Giannis is skilled Shaq is skilled kevin durant is skilled (laughs) like we are not just measuring for skill not even close in any of our top sports there is a huge genetic component that is not being chosen that is already the thing that the sport is measuring for um and there's some skill within that. And then you get people like uh, Steph Curry who are still absolutely freak athletes but have, you know, figured out how to shoot. But, of course, hand-eye coordination is probably genetic in, in part, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it definitely is. Are there people that would argue it's not? I think everything is partially genetic. Um, so in any event. And so is height. Height is partially genetic, partially nutrients, partially whatever. So my solution, and this, this is why I would say, if you don't think that there ought to be a protected league for – let's just call them unathletic men to compete because they will never have a chance or even just low T men or whatever. Um, This group that would never have a chance. Then I think that consistency should dictate that you should not demand that there be a protected league for women either to compete at that stage. Professionally, you're saying. Professionally, professionally. And I reiterate, if you ever want to have a league like me my whole life where you go out and you say, hey, we're the C court, the A court plays over there, and when that guy wants to come over and dunk on us, if you like, basically, if you can dunk, you can't play basketball with me. <laughs> Those are the rules because it's just not fair or right. fun. Sorry, and this is applicable both to pickup in the case of basketball, soccer, it be and, but also intramural. Yeah, intramural, yeah. yeah. Both of those are are accessible, and it's how most men and women, yes, participate in sports when they're zero to twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could break down the things. I, I think I've made this clear, but for 99.9% of people, nothing changes. And the only question that I have for the Olympics, now let's go back to the trans athletes, is, okay, given that there's no, in my opinion, uh, 
protection that we need to guarantee for anyone, anywhere to be a professional athlete? Let's just start. Should Greco-Roman wrestling continue to exist? Not if it's not earning the money. You know, I don't know why they canceled it, but I presume it's something like that. Like, hey, you've trained. You wanted to be a Greco-Roman wrestler. You needed someone to look up to. Tough. It's not earning yeah. money. How much Tough. did that? How much did that suck for the guy that was going to be an Olympian? But it then sucked it got a lot canceled. for that guy. It sucked a lot, but but like you, sorry man, you can still wrestle. You could still pl- do it with your friends. You could still coach a wrestling team. Yeah, you could be a high school you. coach. You can do a lot of stuff, but pe- like you cannot demand that other people pay or the camera crews show up to watch you do something that people don't want. And so I, with the Olympics and uh, women's women's sports in the Olympics and any sport in the Olympics, I just mentioned, you can cancel Olympic sports. Uh, the question is, why should your protected group not have to compete against the best athletes in the world? And the only possible solution that I think is fair is because the market wants it, is because there is a demand for women's soccer, which I actually think there is, mm-hmm. um, because there is a demand for women's MMA, which I know there is. But what trans people, I think, rightly question is this idea that you that that there ought to be this protected group of people that we all agree are not the best athletes on the planet. Um, so there's, I would say there's no, it's arbitrary. And the only question I have is, will the market tolerate trans male to females entering into women's sports? And if the answer is yes, then fine. I don't think that there should have been that subdivision in the first place if yep. the market wasn't bearing it and, and wanting it. Uh, and if not, great. Then then great. Yeah. I want to say one clarifier, which we don't have to touch on. And then I have a question for you. So the, the one clarifier I have is uh, trans people aren't calling that into question. Actually, you you're saying that the philosophical discussion of whether trans male to female should get to participate. Oh, yeah. Calls yeah. this into question. But just to without be clear, being recognized, the yeah. trans perspective is these. I'm a woman. The trans there perspective should, is the, the, there's definitely a protected class and that has to exist and I belong in it. Exactly. Yeah. So I just want to just make it clear not to put words or thoughts into other people's mouths. I yeah, think yeah. the trans athletes argument is, has nothing to do with this and it has everything to do with, there is a women's league. I am a woman and I should participate in it because I'm exactly the same as all of those women as far as qualifying for the category of woman. The people who really bring this into question, are the ones who say, no, you can't. Exactly. Those are the ones who go, wait a second. Why? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So why, you're, why you're, do we have this group? And they go, because it's not fair. And I go, wait, wait, you want to make leagues for people who didn't have a chance to be champions? Biologically? There's a lot of groups that didn't have a chance to be yeah, champions so biologically. I just want to make sure, just in terms of, of uh, you know, what the trans position is actually in this argument. Uh, my question to you is how right. would you- Sorry, sorry. I just want to reiterate what you said. You're right. It's not the trans position, the, the pro-trans entering into this position does not call this into question. No, it, it just says- the anti, should... the anti, you should be able to play in this really calls into question, well, why do we have two separate leagues? And then what their response is exactly what I said. Yeah. My question, because it's just something that we encourage other people to do, steel man the other side. Steel man the other side? Yeah. What I see is a lot of emotion. Like I have a daughter, who will she look up to? Um, like, okay, I will try to steal many other side as best I can. <laughs> well, I answer that question. I have a daughter. Who should she look up to? Uh, Serena Williams or Rafael Nadal or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, um, she, or, or a, a scientist or, a, or like just anyone mm-hmm. <laughs> is the answer. You don't need to have, a, she should also know, I think quite frankly, that we're not, Imagine a world where we were subsidizing scientists who weren't the best scientists in the world. 
And I was like, hey, my son has an IQ of only 110. Which scientist will he look up to? Because there's no scientist with IQs of 110 like him. And the answer is, yeah, we don't want or need them. Yeah. Well, there probably are, but let's say he has an IQ of <laughs> Yeah, 90. I'm just saying. Okay. Which Mensa people or which chess players or which whatever, like who will he look up to? The chess league. Like there's no one in uh, professional chess. Yeah, maybe, maybe I love chess. I have 100 he IQ. Loves I can't chess. look up to anyone because they he all have 160 chess, he can't IQ. can't look up to anybody because he can never be like them and he can never play. Yeah. Okay. He can still play chess. Mm-hmm. You know. I think that's I think that's an important distinction. It's like you you can have the hundred IQ and still play chess. You can be any gender, race, color, creed, whatever, and still play sports. You should play yeah. sports. Sports are great. We should have public courts that people have access to, and you can you know uh, sign up to fill out time, and people can set up intramural leagues and all that kind of stuff. I think is great. Um, so you want me to steel man it as best I can? I, I will just. I don't believe this to be true. Okay, there are cl- two definitive, totally separate categories of humans men and women those are the primary distinction that we should separate people by and they have totally different ac- outcomes in terms of athletics uh women will never get it mean, i'm just saying what people say which is not a good argument they'll never get a chance to win so we have to give them a chance to win in their own protected and league. the reason you find that compelling is because it just there's, applies to there's so all the groups, slow twitch so people and the short could, yeah shorter than nba height people and okay correct we could slice it no, up no, I just a bunch to, of different ways i just wanted to give uh I just wanted to just give the other side its due. Yes. And I, I've, I've said this so many times. If your division, such as 105-pound MMA fighters that have to wear gloves, can't do eye gouges, etc., there's there's all these arbitrary rules in the UFC. If that makes you money, great. Yep. <laughs> like, no girls allowed that are over 105 pounds. And if, you wanna, and if you're a really good fighter, but only with eye gouges, you can't compete. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There's all these rules that you can't do and fight with. And if the market will bear that, fantastic. Um, God bless you. I, you know, okay. go, go be on the Wheaties box. Justin, any questions that you think that I Charlie should address? <laughs> well, no, because before we wrap up and move on, I'm just curious, Justin, kind of, you feel like the everyman role sometimes. What uh, do you, no, no, do you, do you have any hole, holes you see in that argument or oh, me. questions um, for Charlie or you don't have to, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, I just, I guess, I guess the one thing I was thinking was um, if the idea is that you need to, you need to have a market demand for something, how does the market know what it wants before? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Mm-hmm. 
before it's created, but that's less of like a, no, that's a great specific question. thing to this. But. I think that's a great question. And you raised like, um, this is a thing with women's MMA, which is like, there is a lot of right. purists out there that were like, no, never do it, et cetera. And I actually think that there is a fair argument to be made for, look, this group uh, deserves a chance to like have a protected status for a period of time and see if it can generate some market demand Go ahead. No, talking to your mic. Oh, sorry. And see if they can generate. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) And see if it can generate market demand. Um, I think there's a. I think there's a good argument for that. For like taking a crack at a woman's UFC or whatever women's soccer, female NFL, or or try this: 125 pound fighters or 115 pound male fighters or a 230 pound in between light heavy and heavyweight UFC because the guy that would win that would be potentially a different guy that would win at the 260 pound, but we don't have that division yet. So yeah, the, I think there's, you can pl- and should play with these types of things and uh, put enough time and space into them. But I would say, for instance, uh, women's tennis is well-established at what it brings in. Uh, women's basketball that the NBA is well-established at what it brings in. I imagine Olympic numbers are well-established at what they bring in and what the audience wants. And, it, and that can also change in the future. It's possible that... Today, the 125-pound UFC division is not profitable, but in two years, it is. Or if, you know, one guy at 135 is a super charismatic guy, but he can only, can't beat the top dog that they just want to set up a 125-pound division for him to be champion of. Yeah. Um, the, the, biggest, the biggest counter I can think of in terms of at least in, in the initial reaction is like, well, why should we let commerce and capitalism determine sports but your it's your point is your point is it's professional <laughs> it's a, it's sports so it's, the, it's the business of sports so it's everyone it's actually gets to play sports <laughs> exactly exactly everyone this gets. isn't about sports as a whole in terms of people's ability to participate in it you you're saying let commerce and capitalism determine uh which sports are viable in the realm of the business of sports. You have no right to be paid for any job. Yeah. You have no right to the access of a stadium. You have no right to the two television crews and time that is bought with well, that, money and that's not, created from other people. That's not unique, unique to sports either. That's any job. Tone deaf people who like to sing. Yeah, yeah. People who are not good with hand-eye coordination who like to play guitar or piano. Like no one, sure. no one gets to force their way into a professional role of any kind. So that's not, that's not really even limited to sports. Correct. Correct. It is, it's literally just jobs. Yeah. Got um, it. So, so it's specifically about the business of sports. That's, and and in terms of who participates in sport, it's whoever wants to all the time in, in real leagues, in free leagues. We, yeah. The one thing that we talked to, and there's, there's two complicating factors, which if I don't, I think I've hopefully established my position. You guys can disagree further if you want. Um, there's two things that I talked about that are create some issues with this. The first one is race, which I mentioned earlier. Like, should you be able intramurally? Because I said, hey, you can just, you can say no boys allowed. You know, you can absolutely, and we all agree, you can say no sixth grade boys are allowed to play in this league. Mm-hmm. Should you be able to say no sixth grade Asian kids or no sixth grade white kids or no sixth grade black kids? Well, if you were running this down with the same thought process by the way this is a philosophical way of approaching this because i think that with all of this stuff people have a knee-jerk reaction and i'm trying to inspect the underlying principles for consistency inconsistency so they have they have clear i believe data on the disparate average athletics of 
the genders, mm-hmm. I imagine that those are much more closely tied amongst different races of the same gender. Let's pretend that they're not, should you be able to. Let's say that we establish that Asian kids in sixth grade are dominant in basketball. Again, this can be Earth 2, you know. Should you be able to separate by race and say this is a white-only league because my son can't compete with the Asian kids and he will just get run around? Well, the way I'll phrase this, I'll say one who thinks that that logic justifies a female league might use that same logic to justify a league that way. Mm -hmm. And you notice I didn't say I at all, so hopefully I can't get clipped. (laughs) I'm I'm even confused by that. But I guess my position on this, and this is one that is is always messy because the way that they... The way that they did civil rights um, in the 60s where they said, hey, you you no longer have freedom to choose who not to associate with in these particular categories. I don't love, but I actually think had a good outcome. Yeah, it was great. And this is the difficulty that I have with this. Like philosophically, I don't like taking away uh, any person's ability to say no, to spend time with, hang out, play sports with any other person. Yeah, like, well, I, I will that. say the difference is that that was to unsegregate. Mm-hmm. It was it was philosophically the opposite of the men's female division of leagues, in the sense that it was t- it was about not dividing. But what yes, but what I'm suggesting is like um, like that mindset would lead to one intramural league for all genders. Oh I yes, feel but like. I'm saying it's not philosophically clean. It worked, and I don't. I but I don't love the idea that you can't freely say no to who you do business with. Spent, you know what I mean. But I recognize that I like the outcome mm-hmm. of it. And so I don't have a good answer for this one. This is where I, where I admit my... Um... Well, this is the thing about learned prejudices, right? Because the, the, the thought process behind that was that you, this division is artificial. It was created culturally. But once forced together, you guys will realize that you're all the same and you won't, you won't continue to want this division. Like that was the philosophy behind that decision. I suppose, yeah, that that yeah, that in time that there is nothing um, ne- necessary about this division. It is a it is an accident of history mm-hmm. that we have. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that one, but um, it just is. That is always something that is. Civil rights is interesting because it had a fantastic outcome, and I'm not sure that I like. Yeah, you can't you can't choose who like. The other thing that I was looking at is um, the Equal Protection Act. And I don't, I'd love a lawyer out there to let me know, but I was like, this thing is just so selectively applied. Like, you cannot discriminate based on race, religion, color, gender, creed. It's like, what is, what is the WNBA if not in a, in a professional organization that discriminates against the hiring of men? <laughs> like, is there any other way to slice that? Well, I've actually, I've wondered this. I think they get around it by saying they're models, but I've wondered this with bottle girls in Vegas because we were living in Las Vegas. It's an incredibly lucrative job, mm-hmm. several hundred grand a year job that a lot of men would like. And also that a lot of women would like. And you're for sure in the hiring process discriminated against based on gender. No man gets that job. You're a bus boy. You don't get to be a bottle boy. And two, they will just discriminate based on your looks. Mm-hmm. And I think they get around that by saying that they're models. They're not, they don't have to follow that yeah. equal rights Well, this act, is my question is where, is, there's, I'm assuming there's exemptions that are written in. And I'm curious, so is models perhaps an exemption? And mm-hmm. obviously that's where it's like, I want a female model. I want a this. But the examples that they were giving, the thing like it may be, I was looking at the equal, well, just a summary of the equal rights protection. I forget what it's called. And it's like, you know, for instance, saying that uh, college graduates apply here could be considered 
uh, ageist and would would go against this. And it's like, wait, this is so selectively applied mm. because, like, you know, what is no one like, enforces that one. Ten years experience, yeah, yeah, or like, like, or or where? Um, I feel like if we if we demanded the level of discrimination that the the law seems to call for to go away. It, the one thing it said, it was like, for instance, if you uh, in hiring practices, if you only hire people based on word of mouth in the Hispanic community, that could be considered uh, not defensible. And it's just like, what are we talking about? What universe does this not happen where like people, uh, who you know, a family business who is of a particular race tells their extended network in their neighborhood that is similar to, the, you know, them that and then winds up with people of a similar racial background and. Uh, I, I'm just very curious what the exceptions are for this or if this thing is just only applied when, honestly, uh, crassly, and I don't know if crassly is the right word, but like, why is there not a lawsuit that says the WNBA is discriminating against the admission of men into Isn't it because Title IX? Doesn't Title IX explicitly allow you to so Title separate IX based on allow- gender? Well, that's what I'm saying. So what, what supersedes the Equal Protection Act that says you should not, you cannot discriminate based on race, religion, creed, it's got all these things, gender orientation, et cetera. Because it seems like we do that constantly. Um, and so I'm wondering why in some cases we can. When, and this is a true, this is a legitimate question to anyone mm. who understands the law out there. So yeah, do you want to do yours? So well, we, uh, we had a spicy episode. Oh, or continue if you'd like. Oh no, I was just going to say the law isn't, I mean, the law is not a proactive thing. The law is a reactionary thing. So mm-hmm. for instance, there's headhunting firms that are, again, they pay a lot of money for people who help place finance people into new finance positions. And they're paid very, very well. And it's hard work at times, but it's not backbreaking manual labor. And it also doesn't require a higher, a graduate degree necessarily. So it's a very appealing job. And it doesn't split 50-50 men, women, at least at some of the companies I experienced on Wall Street. It's, there's, they're dominated by women. Yeah. It would be, if you're looking at outcomes in terms of which this, e- which this does equity of your outcomes and the way yeah, you're, you're hiring creates unequal outcomes. So yeah, if you're looking at equity of outcomes, these firms are 80% female. Well, the, is it the firms are 80% female or the headhunters are 80% female? The headhunter firms. Even in the C-suite? I, I mean, I think so. I, I will only, as I, I only got up to middle management. But it wasn't well, just the women on the ground. It was also women managing women. Oh, really? Okay. But yeah, you just promote your I, people. I had assumed that what you were saying is that it was almost like, why are all medical sales people women? Because they are appealing to male doctors with, with it some is sort that. of like- I think medical sales is another good example. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't, it doesn't fit pass the equity of outcomes thing. There's mm-hmm. no reason this is a female only job, but it's all women doing it. But my point is the law doesn't- Wait, sorry. You know, what's interesting is that that's because- all of the investment bankers are men <laughs> or most of the yeah, investment yeah. bankers are straight men, which, which then creates the flip of like, Oh, they're more likely to answer the phone or respond to mm-hmm. a, yeah, a younger attractive woman. But the law doesn't step in of its own accord. It has no mm-hmm. mechanism with which to it. You, someone needs to file a lawsuit or yeah. someone needs to report this to the FBI. Got it. The, the law is reactionary in a lot of cases. And so I think to to your question of like, why doesn't this get evenly applied? Well, I don't think there's a government person whose job is to ensure this is being carried out in every small firm and every sport and every whatever. I think you raise it. You to have them. to, you have to tell someone that the law is being broken unless you're, you, 
find yourself in the midst of a giant FBI proactive investigation sure. or something. Understood. So that's why at a small family business, it, it doesn't have to be legal to get away with it as I long as no one's reporting it. This is what you don't want is laws that are um, selectively applied. That mm -hmm. is very, very dangerous. To have a law that makes everybody in breach of it and that is only selectively applied, that is um, that's not good. So I'm curious if there are legal exemptions that are explicitly carved out and why they're carved out philosophically for these particular things. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's not we're all in breach of the Equal Protection Act because we, you know, we discriminate in ways that it says are discriminatory. Um, but it will only be, you'll only have the full weight of the federal government thrown at you in select case cases. That's, that's not a good way to have a society where everybody's guilty. And just you need to piss the wrong person off mm -hmm. or, or suffer the consequences. Well, I don't think everyone's guilty. I just think there are guilty businesses that, which, by the way, is what you won't get with, found out. Which is what happens with the speed limit. You know what I mean? It's like we're all we're all breaking the law, mm -hmm. and uh, you just pick, yeah, yeah, <laughs> who, who you want to who you want to pull over that day, that whatever. Yeah, depending on how many tickets you still need yeah, to give out, how many tickets you got to give out. So it's it's not a good way to do things. Um, you had something because we had uh, one of our most controversial. Yeah, who would have thought this piece? But I actually think the, mo the the down votes, I believe, came from the tech lead discussion that we did. All right. So, yeah, this was something from our last week's episode that I wanted to touch on. This actually wasn't something I brought up. It was something that you brought up. But I saw a lot of people in the comments were um, critical. And so I thought it was worth diving back in. You have pointed out that sometimes in the world of crypto, especially with meme crypto, you can have bad faith actors where they're defending something, but it's not necessarily because they think that there is a strong hole in your argument, but because the, their success requires kind of the next person to purchase so that the price goes up so that they can make money. So I'm going to act like the comments were people genuinely trying to work to get an understanding of if, in this case, Million Token has an inherent value of $50 or $150 a coin. But it's worth noting that you think sometimes That's not when it comes to meme tokens, it's not actually about the truth necessarily. It's about the fact that the way that you make money is by convincing other people to buy. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to act like that's not the case. I'm going to act like people are genuinely trying to figure this out. So this okay. is this is my discussion of crypto. Uh, it's going to be mostly a high-level discussion of what makes something inherently valuable and why I think Million Token is not something that people should invest in, mostly to try to help people protect themselves from financial loss. I have no skin in the game I haven't made a bet for or against it, but I want to touch on it. And I also think people are investing a lot of money into things that they don't necessarily have a thought of, like, why does this have the value I'm prescribing it? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, okay, cryptocurrency, unlike a business, does not have necessarily expected future cash flows. And so when you invest in something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, what you're doing is you're assuming something about the coin is inherently going to have value in the future. Like Ethereum is something that people invest in because they think that the technology is going to be built upon to create things in the future that will generate revenue or be important. Bitcoin, the idea behind it was this is going to be the future of commerce. So if you look at all of the transactions, the total world global economy, basically, and then you say, well, let's assume that half of this goes through Bitcoin. That would mean that each or coin... Or uses Bitcoin as a means of exchange. Right. That would mean that each coin of Bitcoin be worth X amount just in order to be able to carry out all of that 
global commerce. And so therefore it has this much value, right? So there's, there's ways in which certain cryptocurrencies can be very valuable. And I do not dispute that. The question is which ones, right? And so when you want to invest in a cryptocurrency, you want to think what are its use cases? What are its competitive advantages, extra security, ease of use, low energy costs in the realm of going up against Facebook and Libra, Bitcoin that's been around forever, Ethereum, all that stuff. I have a pause. Are you going to mention that speculation is another reason that people would do this, right? Well, that so then so if you're going to get there, that's fine. Yes, no, okay. no. So that that's how you would look at it in terms of the inherent thing, the asset being valuable. In the same way that if you invest in a business, really what you're buying is all of its future cash flows. So actually, I'm not going to fully touch on speculative, except in the sense that then there's another category of things that are more pump and dump Ponzi scheme. Oh, there's also speculation. Take Pokemon cards. Like one might purchase a Pokemon card, say, 10 years ago, believing that someone else would want it 10 years later at a higher rate. Yes. I didn't see anyone arguing that for million token. Oh, is that not what they're saying? I thought that's the only thing they could possibly be saying. No, no one is arguing that it has value. The, this is, the, the interesting thing with the comments for million token is that it's a lot of... Uh, you're wrong. This is backed by a million dollars of cash and there's a million tokens. So if you say that you're wrong, you're, this is backed by a million dollars in cash and there's a million tokens, this should be worth a dollar a token. Unless... Just like a stable Unless coin. there's something else happening. Yeah. Yeah, well, so the question is then, what is million token? It does not, as far as I could tell from my research, have any explicit differentiating use case or a means of turning its initial capital into a profitable a stream of cash like a business does. It has nothing in its coding that makes it substantially better than Bitcoin, Libra, Ethereum, etc. And in the comments from its fans, I didn't see anyone arguing why it is a novel evolution of the cryptocurrency uh, process, I guess, like why it's the next step in evolution. Uh, what I saw was people saying, get on the ship, <laughs> it's going to the moon. Yeah. You're an idiot if you miss out. Basically relying on FOMO, scarcity, now's the time. If you don't get in now, you'll never you'll never get in. Like literally the point where Tech Lead himself when faced with criticism about Million Token responded with a tweet saying stop whining and start helping by buying Million Token. Yeah. Because when you buy Million Token, you help the price go up. And that's not that's not the kind of language you want from the founder of something you're investing in. Yeah. Like you want someone who says, this is, a, if I start a business and we make 10 million profit a month and the current stock is trading at 10 million total, which is a gross undervaluation, I don't care if you buy it or not because I'm just going to get my percentage of our $120 million of profit. So I don't need your help getting the value up. So the, the only way that tech lead makes money is if people buy. And so he's trying to create purchasing through Feeding the use of yeah. scarcity and get it now and this and that. And people don't like this, but the reason that uh, people reference it similar to a Ponzi scheme is because the only way, if there's no use case in the future and it doesn't create cash flow on its own, the only way that you can buy something like that and make money is if someone else buys it from you at a higher price. Mm -hmm. And if ultimately 
million token, the thing that backs it is $1 million and there's 1 million coins, then you would think that eventually it will return to its million dollar valuation. So you're playing a game of hot potato, basically, where you're trying to convince everybody this is more than what it is so that they'll buy at a higher price so that you can sell and get out. And inevitably, someone is left holding it when it falls. And so you can make a ton of money on the way up, but someone will lose an equal amount of money on the way down. Yes. So it's just a very dangerous game to play. And I didn't see anyone arguing for the fact that it is just as uniquely positioned. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see anyone arguing for the fact that it's uniquely positioned to not be that. And, uh, you know, since then it's, it's fallen in half and I'm sure it'll go up again and down again and up and down and down again. And, uh, this isn't to say cryptocurrency is bad and this isn't to say you can't make money on a million token, but it is to say my personal advice would be to be very cautious buying something if your only plan for making a profit is that there's a next sucker up who will buy it from you at a higher price mm -hmm. because the person selling it to you is hoping you're that sucker. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where I would rest on million token. And there's a chance that you could buy it today. It could trip and it could make a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. But I see nothing in the coin that uh, has any sort of future use or inherent profitability or differentiating technology. And when people do talk about why it's a foolproof investment, they say it's because it's backed by a million dollars. And that did make it a foolproof investment at $1 per coin. Yeah, yeah. And when he released his video, he said, this is a dollar a coin. I've backed it with a million dollars. That means you literally can't lose money. Past. So you should buy it. Yeah. And that was true for that moment in time. Yeah. But it's no longer true at $60. And so I think people can get caught up in the frenzy and not understand why he's saying people can't lose money. And they just go, oh, he tech lead is saying you can't lose money. People are posting in the comments saying you can't lose money. There's red thread saying you can't lose money. And then they buy without understanding that was true at a dollar. But now you could you could invest $6,000 and then get caught with mm -hmm. losing $5,900 if it drops back to what it's backed by, which is one US dollar per token. Yeah. I think, you know, just to, some things to really make clear. You can lose money in the stock market as well. It can go up and then down. When you are attempting to make a business, you are attempting to provide a service or transform a physical good into the world into one that people find more useful, such that at the end of the day, there is more stuff or more valuable stuff or greater ease or something has been transformed that has created human utility. Yeah, you, you give someone $1,000 that they invest into wood that they then through their own labor turn into chairs and they sell it for $10,000. those chairs. And they, you you yeah. get your $1,000 turns into $10,000 of revenue through value creation across the process of the business. And there are chairs in the world that people can sit their butts in at this point, yeah. as opposed to, you know, trees standing, which it's, you know, we might not have valued so much. And you could argue that there's a problem with that. No, it's Elon Musk says that one of the worst problems that's occurring today is people don't think of a business as something that provides a good and service that's more valuable than it was before the business mm -hmm. was involved. And so this is the question. There is absolutely, there is only one way that million token, as far as I can see, becomes anything other than a zero sum gamble. And that is if it becomes used as a means of exchange mm -hmm. over, let's say the medium and long haul, which mm -hmm. is five, 10, 20 years. If it is not used as a medium of exchange, because, you know, I want to buy, um, will you accept my million token to purchase this couch or that camera or, or something? 
or like Ethereum if it's some sort of novel technology mm-hmm. that lets other people build technologies on top of mm-hmm. it, which I've not heard anyone say that it is. Uh, yeah. So here's here's the thing with all of this. This can this, this can all get oh somebody comes back and claps. What I would say that I don't know if this exists, but let me know again. We can check the comments. I would love to have some sort of escrow bet where I can bet on the market cap of Million Coin in say twenty four months, um, and I'll put up five ten k. And I, and I don't know if such a thing exists, let me know. But it'd be super cool, and if it's not illegal, if I could put up my 10K and you, there could be crowdsourced bets opposite it that required you to put money into escrow that would be determined by a third party that was like, okay, on whatever July 23rd or whatever day it is, 2023, we are going to look at the market capitalization of Million Token, and above this point, you get paid. Below this point, you get paid. Um, I don't know if such a thing exists, if it's illegal. If it does, I'd like to participate because I, I do think it is um, reasonable in these cases to put some money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd feel uh, I, we, we can pick a rate and then people who agree or disagree can bet against me and that money can can go out. Um, don't know if such a thing exists. Let me know if it does. But uh, yeah, it can unfortunately just been, it can be, a lot of mental masturbation until there's a put up or shut up. Do you yeah. really mean what you say? And I I mean what I say when I say that I do not believe, this isn't a statement of certainty, I believe $10,000 strong that Million Token is uh, not a viable product, that it is uh, going away, uh, it will be significantly less than it is today within two years' time, mm-hmm. um, and you know, definitely in 10 years, but I don't want to wait 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to wait that long. No. And again, and I would just say, I'm not trying to attack anybody here. I'm actually trying to help. Like if you bought million token when it was, and at- if you want to bet on charisma on command, I mean, somebody could put up a bet. That's like, I put $5,000 down. The charisma on command does not exist as an entity in two years or is making below a certain amount of revenue as, as, as their 10 K shows or something like that. Like put the number down and I'll put, I'll put money up yeah. <laughs> depending on what the number you want to say is. Well, no, I'm just saying if someone bought million token at $200, it's, it's at $70 now, you would have lost a lot of your money. And that's why I talk about this. Like personally, I have no investment in this. I couldn't figure out if you can buy puts on it or not. So I didn't, uh, this is not for uh, like my sake. Uh, it's just something I wanted to bring up because I saw when we brought it up a lot of comments trying to hype up million token explaining you don't understand. It's like, Maybe I don't. I went to business school. I worked on Wall Street for four years. Like I understand some stuff about finance. And I think it's very easy to get FOMO, to feel like you're missing out, to see other people getting rich while doing nothing and to get jealous and to let those psychological triggers sway you into doing something on impulse that costs you a lot of money down the line. And so that's why I wanted to bring this up again. Just to say, if, if you have a bite back on this, my only question would be, do you have a bias that's making it hard for you to hear what I say without instantly converting it into a straw man because I'm just trying to help people that listen to us not lose money yeah. on a token that I think will lose money for a lot of people given that it wasn't brought to my attention until it was at $150 a coin mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe it'll go back up from where it is but just over the long haul from what I've seen this is a coin that should be worth a dollar. Yeah, and to be clear, what you're stating is a, a value investor philosophy, which says that the value of any asset is the future cash flows it provides or what you can exchange it for down the line. Um, but there's another philosophy on things, which is the gambler philosophy, which is like, 
I could, you know, if I could turn this into twice as much tomorrow in a zero sum game. Sure. Just, uh, yeah, I, I actually, as long as you're willing to lose it, as long as you think of it like the casino and you don't think it's an investment that can't lose money, which is how it's being positioned. Sure. If you want to buy a million token at 70 bucks and go, if this goes to zero, I'm good. This isn't going to affect my mortgage. It's not going to affect my rent. Uh, I saw with GME that that was not the case, that some people were making tens of millions of dollars and changing their lives forever. And other people were going, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills now. Yeah. Because I went all in on this because I thought we were apes together strong and I believed the rhetoric online and I bought at the top and now I can't make my student loan or my rent or whatever it might be. And I think people buy into this online rhetoric sometimes. When do you think GME returns to a price that a value investor would uh, price it at, which is the expected, you know, expected future cash flows, which I would say even the people who are investing in it right now do not seem to think. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be or some people that think it's more valuable than a 20 or 30 $40 valuation, but it's at like 150 now. Um, when do you think, because this is the question, is these uh, aberrations in what the value investor would predict for a thing mm-hmm. for any particular asset can last for a long period of time. Uh, over the course of one's life? Yeah, it depends unlikely. when you define a, a long period of time. Like mo- many months, sure. Do you think it'll be two years? Do you think it'll be? For GME? Yeah. No, no, I think in, I think in well, this two is, years' time, it'll correct. I'm also asking you this question about America because this is America to some degree. Yeah, yeah. It's like here's um, no, a country that hasn't worked significantly in the last 15 months because of the pandemic uh, with soaring prices of all different assets. They've plummeted in the last couple of weeks, but... Uh, yeah, like how how long can you run downhill printing money on speculative? Well, I think there is a, I think there's a common confusion that maybe because the S&P 500 is up, it's up because of tulip mania. Mm-hmm. But I think we talked about this on the podcast before. The S&P 500 doesn't represent the economic health of the country. country. Yeah. It's just the top 500 businesses and it's not evenly weighted. So if Amazon and Facebook actually did grow during the pandemic which they, they did, did yeah then it makes sense for the s&p 500 to be up even in the face of a country that's less productive than ever with increasing debt and bad spending habits yeah because it's not that's not actually a measure of the u.s's economic health even though people can confuse it as such because sometimes financial tv shows treat it as such mm-hmm. So yeah, as long as Amazon's cooking and Facebook's cooking and Google's cooking, as long as people are online checking social media, searching things, generating ad revenue and buying stuff from Amazon, that can continue to go up while everybody suffers economically. Mm-hmm. But their ad, their eyeballs need to be worth money, which requires them to have a job that, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that, so they can spend things. Anyway, we, we've, we've belabored some points today, but wanted to answer what turned out to be the uh, most negatively downvoted i don't know if negatively received but podcast of all time yeah yeah from my perspective i'm just trying to help people not lose money just like if you want to view it like the roulette wheel that's totally fine people go to roulette and they put a hundred thousand dollars on black there's a 50 over 50 percent chance they lose all their money that's cool that's that's totally ethical you're within your right so i don't think it's evil to buy million token i'm just trying to express the you can't lose this is going to the moon it's safe rhetoric that i see i'm just i'm just trying to be a voice of it's not (laughs) it's not it's not necessarily safe yeah 
it's in fact an incredibly risky speculative investment that does not that requires the people who already own it to convince you that it's safe mm-hmm. so that you buy yeah. so they can sell <laughs> so that they can profit and then get out of it yeah yeah cool all right let's uh let's do it uh we had a couple things one thing i wanted to talk about oh, i thought you were i thought you had nothing no i had some well something you know uh we made a D announcement <sighs> thank you and thank i you. just wanted to say some really cool stuff came through so we're there we saw it it's in process i don't know if justin wrote people back but if in case we haven't gone back to people and you're watching, I just wanted to say we saw it. Particularly, I saw a really cool composer that makes pretty dope music, I thought, and a really cool animator. And your work's been seen, and it was awesome, and we'll reach out to you at some point. This is a slow process as we try to put this together, but I just wanted to acknowledge the people that submitted because we got some great stuff. We're going to hit you up. Not all of you necessarily, but um, we'll put the link in there again if you're interested, which is just we're trying to get D&D going. If you can interested in working with us or helping, there's no guarantee that it's just going to be uh, paid to start because there's no money to start. But if there becomes money, um, there's a potential for that. So we're going to try to get it going. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it's like, uh, I'm, again, I'm not a musician, but uh, the composer sent over some stuff and I saw this is a this is high level stuff. This is great, high quality, professional level work from mm-hmm. someone who watches this. And so I thought that was really cool. And then the animator, they had a big YouTube channel. I was surprised. They, they, when, I, when we got submissions, like, oh, these are pretty small. And this person's clearly already professionally an artist of some kind and so yeah it was it was awesome to see the submissions and i appreciated them so i just wanted to shout that out dope what else you got everything else can wait it's not time sensitive we're we're two hours in let's do questions cool first one is i'm super interested to learn more about your life philosophy um this is directed towards charlie mostly (laughs) Uh, i believe i believe it was last episode you spoke about trying to be more buddhist and have less attachment to things um, while well, this episode, which is last week's episode, I heard you say a seemingly ethical dilemma related to a YouTuber and Bitcoin bums you out. I could be out to lunch, but wouldn't getting bummed out go against the Buddhist philosophy? Or does the philosophy more so state that you can feel things, but not for so long that they start um, that they start to have power over you? I'd love to know where what you are striving for and how I can apply more of these principles to my life. So yeah, where I'm aimed and where I am are just not at all the same thing. So that that's the the first thing. I do not right now and I think I have I need to change the name cuz I think uh the emotional mastery course that we have I wanted it to appeal to people cuz people want emotional mastery but it's much more about like emotional attunement and um it's it's I see emotions almost like a roller coaster and the way to handle a roller coaster is to enjoy it as best you can. It is not to fight it or grip it or try to rip it off the track necessarily that it's on, though there are, this is not a perfect analogy. So, Well, there are exercises, both in emotional mastery shift. and in life, yeah, that yeah. can make the roller coaster less unpleasant, though. Absolutely. Like, I think you the goal, equanimity, which is the goal I think you're, you sometimes at least are aiming for, would be to say that the roller coaster becomes more like a flat circle that you're just kind of, like, <laughs> chilling on. You know what I mean? There's no, like... Yeah. There's no scary rising and there's no woo as yeah. you as you go down. You just yeah, circle around slowly. Yeah, so let me start with where I I guess I'll start with where I am and then I'll talk about where maybe I would like to go. Um where I am. I am uh getting more in touch with my emotional experience, which has, you know, started in emotional mastery and has continued with the use of psychedelics and all those sorts of things. Um I think that there is tremendous value and I am becoming like, I, if there's one philosophy that's maintained its consistent mental hold on me, it's tell the truth. 
Now it's, I'm not, I don't do this perfectly, but I believe like that is the way to live. Um, and so what I have seen is that emotionally I've been unable to tell the full truth because it was semi unconscious in some areas of my life. Um, and the value of becoming aware of emotions like shame, regret, like everyone has difficult ones. For some people it might be anger, it might be love, um, that when you can tell the truth about those things and also experience the truth of those emotions in you as opposed to, it doesn't bother me, you know, whatever, like, you know, I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't get mad at this, but that person, you know, like cut me off, but I know I shouldn't get mad at it. Like that is, uh, that is not the truth. The truth is, uh, you know, perhaps you're raging inside because that person cuts you off. When you can find ways to feel that experience and express it without necessarily slamming your car into them or, <laughs> or starting a fight, that that is, um, that is telling the truth. So my current philosophy and attempt is to lean into telling the truth. The reason that I'm not fully there is because it is gut-wrenching to tell the truth, I think. Because telling the truth often means experiencing difficult emotions in their fullness. Well, I think a lot of what we do, too, is, <laughs> all of us, is you... So you can repress your emotion, but also you can mask it mm -hmm. as something that's more flattering than it is or more reasonable than it is or whatever it might be. So a lot of people, they mask their anxiety as perfectionism, mm -hmm. for instance, or you can mask your rage as righteous fury or judgment or whatever it might be. Or hurt as anger. I think this is a very common one for men. Yeah. Men get hurt and it's like being hurt as a man is not acceptable. Being pissed off. Totally acceptable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you get these, um, you're unable to fully tell the truth. And so what I've been working on is, is, and my general philosophy at this point, is to tell the truth. I think when I heard about Buddhism and a lot of people hear about Buddhism, the promise of an end to pain, and well, not pain, uh, to, an end to suffering is really compelling. And in a, a strangely non-Buddhist way, they then strive <laughs> for the end to suffering. And what I am seeing a bit more clearly now is that the path that is going to get you what you want is telling the truth, though you can't tell the truth to get you what you want because then it won't work. You have to, at some point, fall in love with living an emotionally honest and honest life for its own sake, at which point I believe a side benefit is you feel much mm -hmm. better often. Um so yeah, that that is what I am leaning towards. And so what would I recommend right now, and this could change in six months or a year because I'm still exploring it, I would I would recommend, you don't have to take emotional mastery, but like wherever you are, you could start with um, parts therapy. There was a book that just came out, No Bad Parts, which I'm reading, which kind of talks about exercises that are already in emotional mastery, but uh, have spiritually been born from the author of this book who, who invented this particular practice. Um, psychedelics are psychedelics. They make you see the truth in mm -hmm. many ways is what they do. You might misinterpret it. And I've seen people come out of psychedelic experiences, describe what they saw and then tell me what they're going to do about it. I was like, hold on. You just saw how your whole life you've been afraid to rely on people. And now your solution is that you're going to go be really independent. <laughs> it's like, like people don't always draw the right conclusions from things, but I think psychedelics give you deep insight into emotional metaphysical truths. So yeah, I'm trying to do spend schedule time with activities that connect me to the truth while recognizing I don't really like it too much because it wears me out and it's fucking tiring and I enjoy my ego and the defenses that I've built and all that stuff.
So that's my current life philosophy. Mm. Yeah, there's also, I think there's a, to give advice to someone is to assume that their own life is benefited by the things that they think that they want. And so, you know, to give advice on someone on how not to get scammed is to assume that they're worse off if they lose a huge portion of money that they think they can't afford to lose. Mm -hmm. The Buddhist monk story would be to just say, (laughs) maybe that's the best thing for them. And so when you see someone getting scammed, you go, ah, maybe that's the best thing for, not even that's a blessing. Just so who knows who, who could know if that person losing all of their money in this scam is good or bad for them. Yeah. And then it leads to 10 years of suffering and poverty and they, they hate it the whole time. And you still go, well, who knows if that 10 years is bad for them or not? You just, who knows the whole time. And I think from that place, uh, I mean, really you can only give enlightenment advice at that point because the whole point is that you've decided that the physical world and the circumstances people find themselves in aren't important or aren't, don't, aren't, aren't impactful in the way that they think they are. Yeah. So uh, you know, if we ever get to the point where we're enlightened, that the answer to every question about how do I start a business, how do I invest in crypto, how do I deal with my relationship, how do I this will just be. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, actually, I don't think that that's the case. I think um, it's kind of like the, uh, what is it called, the predetermination thing, determinism thing, mm-hmm. where it's like you could still give advice and you'll still do things, but wherever you are is perfect. And well, the big thing is you're trying to figure out how to get rid of your ex or you're trying to figure out if you should date this person or not, or you're trying to figure out how to make money. And none of these things are inherently good for you. Making more yeah. money, getting in better shape, keeping your girlfriend, breaking up with your girlfriend. There's none of these are inherently from that philosophy. None of these are inherently good. There's no, there's nothing superior about being financially successful, well-respected, having a dating life that mm-hmm. makes you happy versus uh, the worst circumstances sure. you could possibly imagine. Well, I think this is why when you listen to the yogis, they will say like, Look, I'll give you my layers of truth on different levels. On the one level, here's the absolute truth. It's all love and it's all perfect. And they just sit back. They're like, yeah, but like, what do I do about my wife? And they're like, okay. <laughs> so, so you don't, you know, you're not there. What you should do is you should approach her from, and, and they can give um, le- levels down of like useful things so that you could maybe one day ascend to the, the top uh, thing. I will say the one other piece of my philosophy that I have, uh, with, with psychedelics has led me to believe is that there is, it's so cheesy. I'm going to try not to say it in the most cliched way possible. That there is more to life than is immediately apparent in the materialist worldview. Um, that is not to say that I believe in a biblical heaven or in a, re- a series of reincarnations necessarily, but that... Uh, there is something illusory about the end all be all of what seems like our material experience and my conception of myself and that I am in fact at the very, at what I'm sure of is that I am much bigger than my conscious mind. Like there is a whole unconscious part of me, which I've gotten to know and is staggeringly influential. Um, but even beyond that, I hesitate to say that there is a, uh, a spiritual dimension to life, which I, I can't really put anything on any useful words to, to describe it further, but that my philosophy is, is um, increasingly going in that direction. Um, but yeah, you're not going to pr- likely find me uh, reading a hymn or in a church or, or in anything like that. 
And I wonder, as I encounter these sorts of things in my experience, if part of, you know, there's a lot of, I think that religion, I don't think that Noah had a boat. I don't think that um, whatever his name, Abraham, was going to kill Isaac on the stone. And I don't think God would demand it of him <laughs> if he was up there anyway. Like, I think there's so many stories and, and things that are just uh, not true in the way they're described. And even the Jordan Petersonian view of them is highly subjective and what one wants to take is the core of those arguments like is, is the argument you need to kill your firstborn son because a voice in your head told you to or is, is the argument that there's a higher power like that's very subjective interpretation of those stories all that said i think that religion does a lot of things for people that are incredibly important i knew that they brought community together i knew that chanting and dance and sometimes singing is important i don't think i fully grasped how uh if you do have like a spiritual energetic experience how having somebody put that into a framework and a context that tells you yeah there's something else could be could make a lot of sense and i think of my psychedelic experiences and how i've tried to like make sense of them and if you just did that to me early and told me that jesus was the guy i think i could be a pretty religious christian <laughs> and be like yeah jesus was in there and he was blessing me and um I guess he's the one true God and he died for my sins, I assume, because that's the other thing that the church told me about him. Um, but yeah, do you want to share your experience, your philosophy? Make money, fuck bitches. <laughs> that's my old philosophy, dude. That was my old philosophy. You know, it's just two things. I got a girlfriend now, dude. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say I really have a philosophy at the moment. I mean, I have, I have pillars of a philosophy in the sense of, you know, try to leave people better than you find them, try to be honest, try not to create suffering or trauma in other people, try to use the veil of ignorance, try to expand empathy to well, non-humans. So, so these like, are like, these are shoulds. Do you have a meta, what is this thing that we're doing? Any, any idea? No, I mean, I'm not... Well, if I had to gamble, I would gamble this as a simulation. So, like, what is this computer program? Mm -hmm. that would, that's my best guess. I am indifferent to if that's true or not. I make no changes to my life based on whether or not this is prime reality or not. But if I had to bet, and my options are any religion from a textbook, your idea that this is prime reality, and there's a metaphysical... Un ununderstood spirit or simulation my pie chart is heavily simulation but it doesn't that's the same as reality prime to me because i think the fact that something is ai if you're ai or if you're someone wearing a haptic suit i think you still deserve the same level of moral treatment so i know there's people who say well if this is simulation why don't you why don't you just run around with an ak-47 like it's grand theft auto you go, well, I wouldn't do that in Grand Theft Auto if I thought every NPC had the exact same level of cognitive ability and consciousness that I do. Mm -hmm. And my impression is that whether you're AI or not, your brain function is exactly like mine, at least in terms of capability. So it makes no sense to treat this like GTA. So yeah, it doesn't actually have the moral ramifications that some people think in terms of, oh, this is just a game. It's like, well, I guess it's a game where every piece of code <laughs> can feel love and suffering. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't know. That's the that's my metaphysical guess, but it doesn't. It's not really prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Cool. Very good. All right, I have one more. Um, 
So I graduated high school back in 2020 and have worked at Costco since while listening to your podcast and watching your main channel to better my charisma and self-esteem. Cool. However, when I started working in Costco's tire center, I was put in an environment that destroyed my confidence and self-esteem due to my lack of mechanical experience and skill for which I was picked on, teased, and eventually bullied about despite my best efforts to be better. I was finally able to quit because you guys made me realize it's all right to, and I started my dream career job working as an EMT on an ambulance. Oh, sick. That's awesome. And I'm still carrying my lowered self-esteem and low confidence from my other job, and it's negatively impacting my personal relationships. <laughs> mm. I'm rereading the six pillars, the six pillars of self-esteem, Great. but as of right now, I have a lack of hope that my confidence in myself will rise again. You two, you two talk about being skeptical of influencers online, but every piece of uh, advice I've taken from you two has only been positively impactful, uh, including taking psychedelics. So with that being said, any advice you two could give me on how to rebuild yourself after being put down so much would be immeasurably appreciated. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, so the first thing I'd say is you're actually, you're in a solid spot in the sense that you, you once were where you're aiming for which i think is rebuilding is easier than starting from scratch i would say uh so you're you're actually while I, while it feels like you're in a bad place you're not far or your journey's not hard or impossible uh so that's the first thing i would say and i think your experience for how your confidence was broken down was Basically, you were in an environment where it happened slowly over time, right? And so you just want to reverse that process in a lot of ways. You want to try to build it back up slowly over time. And I think that um, the ways you can do that are relationship-wise, like filtering for people who are not like that, people who are kind to you and who allow you to feel good about yourself. And also, I think doing things to stretch your comfort zone and just rebuild that confidence by doing things like improv or public speaking Toastmasters or when you see someone that you want to talk to, you just go up and talk to them and you start slowly, exactly like we talk about on the Charisma on Command YouTube channel to, uh, I guess, reaffirm in yourself that you sh- should feel good about yourself. Like you're you're basically trying to build a house of confidence that th- and they disassembled it, let's say. And so you just want to go brick by brick and think of the different ways you can spend your free time or even your work relationships recreating that identity of a confident person. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad that you went that direction because where I'm at in my life, I always go slower metaphysical and I actually think it's really important to stay practical. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, No, it can look like when you're an EMT, these are totally new people cracking one extra joke, you know, watch, watch a video that I've got coming out on Ryan Reynolds or Chris Pratt or Chris Hemsworth or whatever. I know we're doing COVID, but like if you're both vaccinated and you feel comfortable, just getting used to that one extra hand on the shoulder or that one extra joke. Or if someone says, Hey, how are you? Just instead of saying good, saying I'm fantastic. Life's been amazing today. How are you? And trying to get them out of their routine, uh, getting that positive feedback from them. If the negative feedback from your old environment is what broke you down. I think those little things can help build you back up to be like, oh, I'm in a new place. I've got new surroundings. Still hopefully with your same friend group, but you've removed the people that are pulling you down. So now you can rebuild your positive reference experiences. You mm-hmm. can get reps under your belt of, oh, I, you know, I'm, this is good. This is okay that I stretch my comfort zone, that I do this. Then these people like me and uh, they smile when I smile and all this. And you're, you know, it'll start to reaffirm that sense that you're good enough 
yeah. for people to like you. Do the exercises and six pillars um, is the other thing. So yeah, Ben went very practical, which is good. And I think it's probably right for where I'm hearing that you're at in your life right now. I Maybe some people can just jump to like self-love and deep, deep personal satisfaction. <laughs> but I do think that for most people, there needs to be a stage of a lot of doing and a lot of external validation to build up a foundation of self-esteem just to locate you that won't be the end of your journey mm-hmm. like because then at some point you'll be like oh my god my self-esteem is totally dependent upon the continued validation of other people and that's not to say that you should skip this <laughs> phase it's a really important phase but then i think the things that i you sometimes hear me talk about with sounds like you've done some psychedelics the emotional mastery stuff um will become more important but yeah based on where i'm hearing Stick with, stick with Ben's advice for now, just knowing that this is the crazy thing about life. What was so successful to get you in and through this period of your life is going to be completely not enough and in your way at the next stage. Yeah, what got you here won't get you there. Exactly. It's the great business advice of yeah. all time. But yeah. if you are starting a business, trying to follow the advice that grows a business from 10 million in revenue to 100 million it's isn't actually what you want. <laughs> yeah, 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 so you're just trying to figure out how do I get my first 100,000 of yeah. revenue. Uh, and and I'm, I think... If that, if you feel broken down, I think you're building up from from the ground up. The one thing I actually would say, if you do want something that's more emotional mastery, more in line with emotional mastery, I really like the book "Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It." It's very short. Get the yeah. original if you can. So he, he made he released one that's three times as long, and and the original was I think better. Um, There's another book. You don't have to do it, but feeling good. It's funny. So like the way I'm not saying that emotional mastery is right for you because I actually think there's things as I've continued to understand and grow that I would like to tweak and change. But the week one stuff that I cover in emotional mastery is where you should be, which is love yourself like your life depends on it Mm -hmm. and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very thought level active gooey yeah. type stuff but great for where you're at but like perfect. i think yeah. i think those it's and love yourself like depend on it is very short at the end of the day it has one exercise the book just affirms that it's important uh feeling good is cbt it's i think one of the mo- most effective ways of dealing with anxiety and depression when they study different therapeutic methods uh those will give you tool sets that are really great for where you're at that yeah. i think will serve you a lot better than trying to dive straight into self-love deep trying deep, to be the dolly conditionless Lama. self-love yeah. Yeah. yeah no love yourself because people say nice things about you for a period of time and because you say nice things about yourself yeah, yeah um and that's and that's great love yourself like your life depends on it is about training yourself your to internal talk yeah be kind to yourself yeah. because often your own negative thoughts are probably the person that's negative to you most frequently in the day is probably yourself especially now that you've quit your job. Like the amount of negative things that other people say to you throughout the day probably pales in comparison to the number of negative thoughts you have in your own head about yourself. Yeah. And And so that's where I think love yourself like your life depends on it can help you be kind to yourself and affirm yourself because then you're still going to be the person that talks to yourself the most. Mm -hmm. So that'll help, I think, a lot. And yeah, do that. And then at the same time, I think it's really a great place to start to go to Charisma on Command take lessons from the videos and apply them to yourselves and build up charismatic, happy, outgoing uh, habits that make people like being around you. And I think that'll make you feel good and confident. Yeah. Uh, We don't need to talk about it now. I was thinking of the limits of love yourself life. Your life depends on it, which is still fantastic and you should do it. But it's Mm -hmm. like, it's a book primarily about what you say to yourself in your own head and some of the behaviors like, you know, you take a nice bath or something like that. But I do think that's, that's, 
fucking awesome and highly powerful and has been insufficient for the author and for a lot of people because loving yourself goes beyond what you consciously repeat to yourself in your mm -hmm. head and the actions that you take. It, there's an unconscious dimension to it as well. Um, just thinking about like, yeah, why, why doesn't this go all the way down? And that's, I think, a, sh a summary of why. Yeah, it's just like, just great. You, you learn great. guitar yeah, 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 by, by yeah. starting with the stuff. Exactly. It makes sense start, to start with. Start you don't, at the beginning. You don't, yeah, exactly. You start, start at the beginning. beginning. That's it. Cool. cool. All right, now on to our Patreon. Our patrons. Um, I'm going to text about the sauna, but yeah, let's do it. We appreciate all you guys. If you want to hop into our Patreon, um, we need you. <laughs> it keeps the podcast going. We're, we are under the current level of funding to make it... Um, four episodes a month. We the have, podcast could get canceled at any moment. It won't get canceled Panic. at any moment because we did, um, we had some sponsors that have a little bit of a, like a war chest. And Jordan Belfort's end. clips graced us with <laughs> yes. ad revenue. Yes. Um, but it is below sustainable, sustainable at four episodes a month right now. So if you'd like to join the Patreon, not only do you get patrons, but you really help us continue. So hope that you consider that. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.